holidays happy yep we're right in the middle of the holidays yeah do you have any holiday tv shows episodes of tv shows that you watch during the the holiday season um i mean the oc christmas episodes are pretty pretty much a must do you watch all four of them uh kind of depends on the mood because they're very different vibes they're They're, like extremely they're like punchy or depressing or uh, yeah you just kind of gotta feel it out but obviously the first one is the must-have and then you kind of like feel it out from there i mean having just rewatched all the oc with our members i one had assumed and had hoped there was a christmas christmas episode in each season and was quite delighted that there was and i mean We've talked a lot about how I deeply love season four and how off the rails it goes. Mm. The season four Christmas cut episode is like pretty phenomenal. It's it's a little bananas. <laughs> it's but so it's, bananas, it's but I fun. love it. <laughs> also, Happy Endings and New Girl have some pretty good Christmas episodes. There's a New Girl one where they take Jess to the street that's like all lit up called Aww. Candy Cane Lane. And at the end, they all get out of the car and they, Nick is just screaming. Make it the candy cane lane. <laughs> Turn your lights on. In the in his like Chicago accent. That's just my favorite thing. I deeply love a good sitcom. I know we discussed last week sitcoms versus comedies, but a great sitcom comedy or holiday episode is like pretty fantastic as well. Yeah. I deeply love the Buffy Christmas episode. Season three. She's got the terrible bangs. Which only last for that episode, but I right. deeply, deeply love uh, that. Do you I, know what happens? I don't. When I think I need it's to after Angel it. has come back and okay. he is being haunted by, like he's back his, in like, angel mode, or he's, you know he's back in angel mode, okay. so he is like died. Okay. Spoiler, and then come back. Oh yes, season three, season and so is, yeah. Got it. And so the people that he has killed in the past oh, yes. are haunting him. Yes, and yes, we yes. get David Boreanaz and his Irish accent and a lot of flashbacks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the flashbacks are really something. <laughs> the flashbacks are fantastic. But I just like really love the scene at the end with Buffy and Angel when he's trying to basically break it off with her and baby kill himself. There's a whole thing. But anyways, but she convinces him that she loves him. And then it starts snowing and the sun doesn't rise. And I just think it's very Sunnydale. I do remember that one now. You know, I don't know that it's a favorite of everyone's, but I deeply enjoy it as a Christmas episode in general. Yeah. And then all of the Hallmark holiday movies, which are made for TV movies. Hallmark, Lifetime. Netflix has got a few good ones that have come out over the years, but I deeply enjoy a holiday movie. Do you have a favorite one that you rewatch or do you just like dive into the new batch every year? I dive into the new batch, but I appreciate that they rerun the old ones. So like Emily Moss Wilson, dear festival friend, mm-hmm. um, always has one or two that come out. So I always love rewatching her old ones and then seeing her new ones. So yep. those are on repeat a lot. Don't really know how to. No good segue. segue no into good this, segue. But... Well, before we segue, I want to do a quick plug just because we're in the middle of December. So 
deadlines are ticking away that our pitch competition submissions are open. Our early bird submission deadline just closed at the beginning of December. But we have two more deadlines. January 12th is regular submission and January 19th is late submissions. So if you have an idea for a TV show, it's very easy to submit your pitch. You do have to write a script that goes with it. So it's not just like something you do overnight, but you've got plenty of time. Um, You just need the first 10 pages of the script written. So people can go to atxfestival.com backslash pitch to read all about it and apply. And one of the big things that we've really been focused on the past couple of years is that the pitch competition lasts beyond just the festival. Mm -hmm. So I've been working with the finalist all year long for the past couple of years and developing a pitch program that has a little bit more defined curriculum now for helping writers get to the next phase of their career. So if you are trying to break into the industry, get that first writing job, this is really a great place to get started. You've really kind of gone full like Coach Taylor with this I have. program. I do. I uh, very much, I'm like very, very invested in the top 10 finalists. Um, started forming relationships with them after 2021 during the virtual year, year of COVID. Uh, and then really the past two years have just gotten to know them really well and figuring out what they need and how to support them and being that support all year and beyond. It's been really fun and they're all so fantastic. And I just want everyone to see the TV shows that they're working on because they're so great and so different from each other, which mm-hmm. is fun for me too. Yeah. There's a lot of fun, interesting ideas. So I, yeah, submit. <laughs> submit. Uh, hang out with me for a year is basically what you get. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, I don't know how to segue from that into sustainable stories for a climate in crisis presented by Hollywood Health and Society, but we're just going to do it. We're just going to dive right in. The weather's changing currently now, and how do you like my my alliterative title? I think it's beautiful. Thank you. You did such a great job. <laughs> um, Hollywood Health and Society, mm-hmm. we've worked with for a very long time. They pitched this idea? Yeah, we usually, so at the beginning, well, the fall before the festival, we usually talk to them and they sort of have their priorities for the year. They have usually like five to seven topics that they're really focusing on throughout the year. And uh, climate change is one of them. And they have a lot of these sort of events and panels and talks where they kind of dive into these priority issues throughout the year. And so this is one that we started talking to them about very early on. And as they kind of discuss in this panel, it's a little bit of a challenge to figure out who can speak to it, at least on the creative side, because there's still quite like a dearth of uh, representation on TV about this topic that doesn't really get discussed very much. And so the sort of instances where it's addressed in a way that is you know, something that can be sort of pulled out as an example are pretty few and far between. But because they so actively work with writers on these topics, they they know exactly what shows are talking about it. They know how it's been talked about, um, how often, and, you know, they're both on the creative side and the research side. So, so yeah, it's really interesting to get to talk to them or work with them on putting these conversations together and sort of figuring out, like, 
okay, this isn't something that gets discussed a lot on TV. So how do we sort of come at it? And it's, we ended up coming at it from both the writer perspective and the research perspective. Um, and then Kate Fulb, who's the director of Hollywood Health and Society, also uh, joined to sort of bring in the, be the connective tissue between the two. I loved hearing about how they do the research. Yeah. I think that that's really cool and how they come up with specific search words and then search hundreds upon hundreds of transcripts of It sounds incredibly overwhelming. I mean, yeah. so much. And then there was one anecdote about having that they'll watch hundreds of hours of TV, but they basically hire students to do that and watch things. I'm like, what a great job. Yeah. Of just like a, a side gig of like, yeah. yeah, I'll watch these TV shows and make notes of how they talk about things and if they include certain subjects. Yeah. And how valuable that is to everything that they're doing. Yeah. I also had my fangirl moment over Zoanne Clack. Just because first time ATX panelist, now running Grey's Anatomy mm -hmm. and co-running Station 19 mm -hmm. and just has been on Grey's since the beginning. And it's just one of those people where you meet and you're like, you're just so cool. Just yeah. everything about you just exudes coolness. And then you get on a panel and you're so eloquent and you're doing such great things. And Grey's is one of those shows that Howard me years later is still hitting so many notes of important subjects but doing it in such an entertaining and beautiful way yeah and that's phenomenal to be able to do after all these years yeah and she we were supposed to have a couple of additional writers on this panel um that had some things come up last minute but two of the shows that we really wanted to include in this conversation are extrapolations and uh the man who fell to earth and um jenny lumet and scott z burns really wanted to be on this and then um, unfortunately couldn't at the last minute. But those are two shows that are two of the big examples, I think, of how this topic can really be approached. I mean, extrapolations sort of tells it in chapters that mm -hmm. progress in a really unique way. And then The Man Who Fell to Earth has sort of a genre bent to it that allows both sort of like an allegorical version of it, but also it's a pretty grounded like version yeah. Yeah, of, yeah. Um, I guess the sci-fi slant on this topic. So, but yeah, we'll, I mean, this is one I think that we're going to obviously circle back to. It's pretty, I know hope this, <laughs> it's a pretty big topic. So the hope is that this is one that can keep being expanded on over the years because more and more shows will address it yeah, and be interested in addressing it in ways that are, creative and inspiring and not just make you feel like you're learning a lesson, which is what I think Hollywood and health and society excels at is helping creatives tell stories that are grounded in reality about these really tough issues without just being like, here's a PowerPoint presentation on climate change go, but it makes it interesting and how it actually affects people, which is the most interesting part of any story. Yeah. Well, there's so many incremental ways to to incorporate this topic in it's like single use like are there single use plastics like literally on screen yes i thought that was behind, an interesting like, part of the conversation or, yeah, yeah like are they using reusable bottles are they you know it's just yep. like stuff that the stuff that you don't even think about that is such but that does register after you see it enough times it makes an impact in that way which they're not even actively talking about you know 
yes reusable versus single use and all that stuff so um so yeah it's really interesting to hear sort of the different like lanes within this massive topic and how they're sort of hollywood health and society is sort of helping writers work those like incremental changes into the story solid word (laughs) steps forward thanks i got there agreed agreed on all fronts all right well let's get into sustainable stories for a climate in crisis presented by hollywood health and society uh with zoanne clack erica rosenthal kate fulb and moderator clay baron from earth x film enjoy So, Kate, I'd love to start with you to give us a little bit more of an insight on what you do with the Hollywood Health. Sure, thanks. So, um, it's a mouthful. So, our (laughs) organization is uh, the University of Southern California Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Mm -hmm. Hollywood Health and Society Program. Oh, I missed something. Annenberg School for Communications Journalists, Norman Lear Center, Hollywood Health and Society. And here, I, uh, in honor of Norman Lear, who's 100 years old, I got, his, I got this at his birthday party last year. He's going to be 101 next month. Um, but within the Norman Lear Center are two flagship projects, Hollywood Health and Society, the one that I direct, and the Media Impact Project, which... Erica runs the is director of research, so um, we're sister organizations under the auspices of the Norman Lear Center. So we just call ourselves HHS and MIP. So <laughs> it's it's a big long mouthful. But anyway, what we do there is we study and we shape the impact that media have on audiences. So Erica is in charge of the studying part, and I'll let her tell you about that in a minute. And my project, Hollywood Health and Society, is part of the shaping project. Now, we don't go in and tell writers what to write. Um, God forbid. <laughs> but uh, they, they're the visionaries, and they're the artists. But we can help support them in their research to ensure accuracy around their depictions. So whether it's health, medicine, science, public health, uh, personal safety, policy. So all of those kinds of issues, we can bring experts to those writers to help them sort of understand the issue, make sure they get the language right, make sure they get the depictions as accurate as possible. And I hope Zoanne will give us a big shout out when it's her turn. <laughs> but <laughs> um, anyway, so we consult, we've consulted with hundreds and hundreds of shows. We were established in 2001, so th- thousands of shows at this point. We, cons- we hold about 300 consultations a year with everything from medical shows to cop shows, to kids' shows, Mm -hmm. to some reality shows, to documentaries as well. So that's the shaping part, and that's what we do. So I'm going to turn it over to Erica to talk about the studying part at Media Impact Project. Sure. Thanks, Kate. Uh, So at the Norman Lear Center Media Impact Project, we do research to really understand what are the messages that are being conveyed through through media. 
scripted entertainment, TV and film is, is really our bread and butter, but we also do research on a variety of, of other types of media, journalism, documentary film. We've done work on, on video games, music videos, music lyrics, but a large portion of our, our work does focus on, uh, on scripted TV and uh, narrative film. Um, so there's the understanding the messages because we know that messages in media are particularly influential, particularly when they come through narrative uh, entertainment. Entertainment has a way of bypassing the kind of cognitive defenses, the, the mental processes that we, we tend to throw up when, we're, when we encounter more overtly persuasive messages like advertising or, or even uh, news. Uh, we tend to counter-argue those messages, like poke holes in all the ways that we, we think they're wrong, whereas entertainment messages can often fly under the radar. So it's, it's really important that the messages in entertainment are, are accurate and nuanced um, and, and fill these gaps. So that's, that's what Hollywood Health and Society does to make sure the, the, the stories are accurate. And then we study uh, how the messages are are, are you know what 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 are the different aspects the context of these messages? We we look at audiences uh, in terms of uh, you know what kind of entertainment they consume, uh, what are their values, um, what are their kind of entertainment motives? Like what are they seeking out of their entertainment? And then we look at the relationships between those things, and then finally we study the impact of these stories in media and entertainment on audiences in terms of. Is it increasing their knowledge on a particular issue? Uh, is it changing their attitudes? Is it even motivating them to, to act in a certain way? So we do that through survey research. We, we also do a lot of um, social media, um, not just social listening um, or kind of reach and engagement, but we also like delve deeply and qualitatively into the content of the social media messages to really understand how, the, how these issues are being discussed. Uh, in the in the social media ecosystem. So I'll pause there for now. That's great. I love that. I would love to also do a very quick survey of our audience here that we have. I mean, you guys came here on a Sunday um, to talk about climate. And so I assume that everybody in here has at least a passing interest in the subject matter, yes? yes. Perfect. And how many of you are in the industry or would consider yourself a storyteller at all? Perfect. Great. Great to know. Um, one thing I would like to be able to do with this conversation is we definitely have time um, allotted for Q&As, but I've sat on so many panels where I have a question and then 35 minutes goes by and it's no longer relevant. So I'm gonna try and check in from time to time and open up the questions sporadically as we go through some certain topics. Um, the first thing I wanna address is we're coming up on tw almost 20 years since like An Inconvenient Truth came out. Right, and the motive of that was like, hey, people, this thing is real, I swear to God, like, you just have to start paying attention. And then it's followed by what, you know, Jeff Orlovsky did with Chasing Ice. And I just think we are at this stage where the argument over whether or not this is happening is no longer relevant. And we're also seeing it, like in your study, that audiences recognize that. You know, I was so fascinated to read that 70% of Americans are on a spectrum of alarmed to cautious about climate change. Not just accepting that it is, but that it is very real and that it is affecting their lives. Meanwhile, from 2016 to 2020, only 2.8% of film and television scripts even mentioned climate-adjacent words, right? Can you kind of 
start, I don't know, explore that disparity a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the statistic that 70%, I believe it's actually 75% now, okay. of, uh, of Americans are alarmed, cautious, or concerned about climate change. That comes from uh, the Yale uh, Program on Climate Change Communication. I hope I got the acronym right. <laughs> uh, so they've been studying uh, audience uh, or Americans' opinions related to climate change for, um, I believe, over 15 years now in tracking those changes. So that continues to increase. Um, there's very few people that are at the, the far end of that climate denial spectrum. Um, they have an outside voice, <laughs> outsized voice. Um, but the vast majority of Americans know climate change is happening uh, and believe it's a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. So in our research, um, so we've assembled a, a database of uh, transcripts from about 150,000 uh, TV and film episodes going back to uh, 1910. So uh, it's, it's a little more denser in the last uh, several years <laughs> as there's a whole lot more content. So we, we looked at uh, climate change mentions in scripted TV and film during the five-year period from 2016 to 2020. So to do that, we put together a list of 36 keywords relevant to climate change. So that included things like climate change itself and, and global warming, um, as well as kind of more, more climate adjacent terms like rising sea levels and ice caps and things like that. So all together, all 36 of those keywords appeared in 2.8% uh, of the TV and film transcripts from, from that time period. We look at climate change alone, it was only about a half a percent. So this is an issue that is top of mind for 75% of Americans, and yet it's almost entirely invisible in the TV and film that we consume. And I know it's, for some reason, it's a, it's a weapon, right? The word is a weapon in, in our discourse. And I think, I'm guessing, and Dr. Clack, I'd love your opinion on this, is, if, is there a deterrent to bringing up such subject matters? Like when you're in the room, like. Uh, you know, um, I wrote it down here. Uh, There's a writer, uh, Victor Kanaj, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, he writes for Big Mouth. And he was quoted in saying that he would never go into a room with a story and say, this is about climate change. He wouldn't even bring it up to the other people in the room. What he, he says, I have to be more subtle about it. I have to make it, you know, allegory or anything like that. Does it come up in the room when you're discussing future stories? See, this is where uh, Grey's Anatomy differs a lot. Um, we have, you know, at the beginning, more, more of our cultural issues and, and that sort of thing were very subtle and it was very like groundbreaking for that time. But as we have evolved and as, you know, the world has changed, um, we have gone straight in on issues. Mm. So in our writer's room, we say, we'd like to do a story on climate change. <laughs> and then we go, how do we do that? And that has been the problem for us. It's like, what do we say or how do we, you know, how do we dramatize that? The, one of the episodes that we did called Hotter Than Hell, which was kind of based on the big Seattle heat wave that happened the year prior. What we really, really wanted, and we tried to get HHS to give us this, but we couldn't find it. We really, really wanted a disease that was directly related to the heat. Mm. Um, that we could dramatize on the show. 
which we were unable to find because there's there's a lot of things like environmental things that go on for a while and that would give you something but you know the heat crisis was very like specific and not long term and so we couldn't find the actual disease to um, kind of hone in on so we had to kind of go in a different direction but it has the the actual climate change crisis has given us a very kind of shorthand and a way to do like dramatic uh, weather situations that don't usually happen, say, in Seattle and just say climate change. Mm -hmm. And it just explains it. We really, really wanted to just really dramatize something. And Kate was mentioning that we had this storm episode, this ice storm in Seattle. And but that was like 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And we didn't really have that as we just did it. And we just said, oh, sure, that could happen in Seattle. But now I think if we did that, we could say climate change. <laughs> and everybody would go, yeah, yeah, you know, that could yeah. totally happen. So it, it's, it's nice that you have kind of a shorthand now. Mm. But on the other hand, we have found it a bit hard to really dramatize it in the way that we really want to. Because, you know, in our writer's room, we'd be like, let's do a story on climate change and then yeah. push it forward. I have to say, um, Eric and I wrote a chapter in a book about um, giving some case studies of issues that we worked on with the entertainment industry, some successes and some, I'm not going to say failures, but some less successful efforts. And the less successful effort, and this is going back 10, we've probably been working on climate change with the entertainment industry for over 10 years now. And, um, but the less successful effort in the beginning was climate change. We could not get writers to, or I don't, I think the writers were interested. It was mm -hmm. getting past, you know, the network and the studios and the fear of the audience backlash and the political piece and all of that. And so it was, first off, it was getting to writers and helping writers understand, like Zoanne was saying, it's a vast concept. How do you funnel that down and talk about a person, you know, that somehow reflects climate change? It's a, it's a tough thing to do unless you have a disease or you have something that, and we're getting there now, mm -hmm. but, um, but so that was the thing that we did in the beginning for years, just kind of trying to give examples and case studies of, of the hunters in Greenland that make their livelihood hunting seal on the ice and now there's no ice and so they're all, you know, these are indigenous people and now they have to move to the city and they can't get a job because of, you know, showing that connection, but it's sort of a long tail. So we did that for a long time and little by little, you know, people would start to pitch storylines. And one uh, storyline, it wasn't even a storyline, it was one sentence that was put into a children's show. <laughs> I don't think they mind me saying Doc McStuffins, if any of you know Doc <laughs> McStuffins, on Disney Junior. They're, and the episode is titled The Big Storm. And so they have a big storm and all the little toys, if you know the show, it's Doc is a little girl and she wants to grow up to be a doctor and she you know, treats her toys. So when somebody, you know, needs stitches or whatever, and her little playhouse is her little, you know, hospital or whatever, and she, and all her toys come to life and, you know, all of that. So there was a big storm and all the toys were afraid and they're huddled in the playhouse and the wise owl 
is, you know, calming them down and telling them. And it's one line that the writer put in that said, as the earth warms, storms mm. will get more intense. And the network had a fit. Mm. And it was a huge fight between the showrunner, whom you know, uh, and the network to keep that line in. She won because her show is wildly popular. Yeah. And, and that's as, you know, Zoanne has that advantage too with, with Grey's Anatomy. It's so popular, they're gonna kind of let you guys do whatever you want. But it was a battle. Just to get that one little sentence, didn't say climate change, didn't you know? So I mean, it was really a slog in the beginning, yeah. and now I mean we're starting to see more interest. You know, certainly the audience is interested, and writers are interested. So, and, and there are other examples I can give you, but I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that's actually fascinating, and leads to a question that that I wanted to bring up. You know, I mentioned like we see and we make documentaries because there is a barrier of entry that doesn't really exist in documentaries and even like independent film, right? You can write your script and you can go shoot it. You can grab a camera, you can go interview somebody and you can find a way, put it in a film festival, put it online, whatever. But when it comes to specifically, I think, scripted television, there's just so many more barriers that it has to go through before it sees the light of day. And I imagine I was going to ask, like, what is the response from studios, um, executives, ad, ad agencies, as you are trying to put these stories forward? In you know, I, I think of something like even gun control, which is just as a controversial subject, but you see more content about gun control that, than you would about climate change. I would say. So, is that a changing facet with the studios? Are they becoming more open to it? Do they see opportunity, or is it still just, hey, maybe push that aside? Well, I think with the advent of streaming, there's a lot more opportunity because it's not advertising-based, mm -hmm. or a lot of them aren't, although that's probably going to change, too. Um, so there's more opportunity there. They don't have to go up against commercial mm. television, which is largely supported by ExxonMobil and um, right. the pharmaceutical industry, basically. <laughs> so... Um, so I think there's an opportunity. We had a lot in the beginning, like I said, uh, and I don't interact so much directly with the networks as much as I am talking to the writers and the showrunners, but there would be sort of fear in there, like your guy from Big Mouth, like mm -hmm. uh, I have to really be you know, careful about how we bring this up. Right. Uh, we're embarking on a gun safety campaign that we launched here That's at great. ATX just the other day. Amazing. So we're going to, which is based on a study actually that Erica's team did, um, where we're going to go into the writers' rooms and really encourage, not get rid of guns, but let's can we see people depicting, mm -hmm. or can we can we see depictions of people storing their guns safely? That doesn't change your storyline at all. Um, around climate change, another effort that we're doing is. Um, which is also based off a study that Erica's team did on plastic and plastic pollution. And we're going to encourage uh, the entertainment industry to take single-use plastic off camera. Great. So let's not see the single-use... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a glass one. It's kind of reusable. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yes. But the single-use, you know, the red solo cups that they... First of all, we, and Eric can talk about that study, actually. But, um, you know, can we just not see people using those? Let's see them using reusable water bottles. Let's see them using, you know, something that's... Because the other thing we don't see, and I'll let Erica comment on it, is we don't see them dispose of it. 
it just mm-hmm. magically dis- disappears. And where does yeah. all that go? So you want to comment yeah. on that? So we, we looked at uh, depictions of single-use plastics in popular entertainment. We found an average of 28 single-use plastic items per episode. Wow. And that doesn't even include what we called mass plastic events, which is like scenes at parties or in grocery stores where there's just too many plastic items to count. So we just counted that as like one mass plastic event. And that's in addition to the average of of 28 additional items. And then uh, I believe it was like 7% we saw being disposed of and the majority of those were being littered. And it's never discussed. Like where the plastic goes is never discussed, except occasionally in documentaries. We had a party on Grace that I know we discussed because it's you know the red solo cup is like classic, you know. Right. You know you're having That's how you a party. show it's a trap party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but we discussed not using those and using like recycle. Do you know if we did it? <laughs> I'm was not it? sure. <laughs> it was the. In, this past, probably this, this so past probably season. not in our study okay. because yeah yeah um, we definitely discussed it and we were like we just can't have these like single use cups um, but I don't know if, if it made it through production yeah that's great there's remember. like a, a few shows that have done that um, and there was a scene in, in you where there was a party and, and people had you know reusable cups um, in a superstore they were all using hydro flasks. So it was a great, you know, branding opportunity for Hydro Flask and yeah. also a way to show, um, you know, reusable bottles. Like you could have people, you know, when they're getting takeout requests, uh, no utensils or um, mm-hmm. uh, request the non-plastic containers, uh, show people eating with, with metal utensils. There's, there's so many ways to, to do this um, and talk about it. Like that's, that's the thing. Like um, some of these things might, might not be... Me- noticed if they're just kind of shown in passing but actually you know have the character say i would like no utensils please yeah well there was a scene actually in that show hacks um where she's going to the soda fountain or whatever and there's plastic cups you know and then you can get your drink but above the she picks up a plastic cup to get her drink and then she notices that they're selling the reusable cups like they do in starbucks and whatever and and she, you see her think about it, and then she puts her plastic cup back and picks up the... So that's like a, the tiniest little scene. And it mm-hmm. didn't change the story that they were telling, um, but it, it made a huge impact. And it's kind of, you know, like... Uh, we sort of liken these things to the seatbelt campaign, the designated driver campaign, where the entertainment industry took, upon, took it upon itself to show... You know, some of us that are of a certain age in the room remember the days when it wasn't cool to wear your seatbelt, you know, and people just didn't. And the entertainment industry embraced that issue. So anytime anybody got in a car, they just put on their seatbelt. And the next thing you know, we're all doing it. And we don't even think, we think it's uncool if you don't. So that was really something that entertainment was able to change without it changing any of the stories they wanted to tell. Yeah, we're, none of us are really suggesting that everyone should go out and write these heavy climate storylines. I mean, it would be great to have a few of those, but, uh, but it doesn't, not all of it has to be um, like a didactic story about the effects of climate change. It's just normalizing the discussions. Like 75% of people are very concerned about climate change, but there's research that shows that they, they don't perceive um, the, their fellow Americans as 
being as concerned about climate change. And part of the reason why is because they don't see it in the media they consume. People do talk about climate change in reality, especially younger people. I mean, it's a huge issue among Gen Z. Um, climate anxiety is extremely high among Gen Z. And we actually do see these discussions in, in a lot of shows that are targeted more toward um, you know, a younger audience. I, I can't even remember the names of all of them. I watch so much TV, but there was a show, I think it was called The Lake, um, where there was uh, like a teenage girl and, you know, she just talked a lot and some of that talk was about climate change, <laughs> um, as teenagers do. Um, and that's great. Like, that's exactly the kind of thing that we're looking for. Just show how people discuss this issue in reality. Show that it is important to people. Yeah. Um, I want to do a little bit of a shift before we do. Does anybody have any questions at the, up to this point? Yes. I just wanted to get your background because during the intro, I heard about what they did, but I wanted to hear oh. more about oh. what they do. <laughs> Go for she's it. The one. Yeah. Um, she's the famous one. She's the one in the room. She's the fanciest one here. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm an executive producer on Grey's Anatomy. I've been on there since the beginning, so nine, going on 20 seasons. And I just took on as a co-showrunner of Station 19, which is our sister show. And I'm an emergency medicine physician by training. I don't practice anymore, and I have a master's in public health. So these ladies basically validate my existence in entertainment <laughs> because I get to do a lot of entertainment education and be able to put issues out in an entertaining way and just have these like subtle messages that I'm learning about that I can just do <laughs> with climate change. Uh, so that's my background. That's right. Uh, yes. That's totally true. And we have looked at, uh, I mean, among the keywords in our, in our study were vegetarian and vegan, and those are mentioned. Um, but they're very rarely connected to climate change. Like, that's a theme that we saw across all the keywords. Uh, I think it was like 8 or 10% of the time these, these terms were mentioned, there was some explicit mention of, of climate change. They're also rarely connected to, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry or the causes of climate change, and they're rarely discussed in the context of uh, behaviors that people can can take to affect climate change. So that's a study that we're, we're hoping to do. Um, this was just looking at dialogue um, based on the scripts, but we also do research where we'll actually sit down and watch hundreds of episodes. We hire students to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, track how often people engage in different behaviors. Um, and like you said, it is all about cars mm -hmm. uh, and solar panels, which are not accessible to the vast sure. majority of people. Everyone can give up something. Right. Give up 
Yeah, so it would well, be really interesting to see, you know, how often, like, veganism is depicted relative to electric cars, which are becoming more common. I just got one last summer. Um, uh, and I, I think when people think, like, oh, how can I show people taking steps toward combating climate change? Like, the obvious one is, like, show them driving an electric car or <laughs> show them getting solar panels, when in reality, those things, I mean, it's helpful, but it has much less impact on greenhouse emissions mm -hmm. than um, consuming less meat or becoming vegan or flying less or not driving at all. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about this is that I want every, and this is something that I struggle with all the time too, is yes, I, I drive an electric car, I am vegan, I, you know, I do my thing, but until we have corporate and yes. political will you know, those are the, I mean, this, the, the corporate world has succeeded in marketing climate change as if it's our individual responsibility. Yep. And, you know, and they don't have to do anything because we just have to change our behavior. Now, it's, it's all of us. We do. And we can change our buying and our, shop, you know, our shopping and, and things like that. But storytelling in terms of, you know, really um, exposing who's really contributing yeah. to this, what countries are really contributing to this, and that it's not just about recycling and driving an electric car. That actually leads perfectly into Another storyline for you. Yeah, the, what I wanted to talk about next, it's, and it's kind of, it's two prongs. It's tone and it's subject matter. You know, one of the things that we've come up against when we program constantly, we refuse to program it anymore, is so much of the content when it comes to climate change is basically like the planet is dying it's your fault but there's nothing you can do about it watch this movie and that's just not effective storytelling there has to be some kind of impact campaign tied to it or hopeful tone tied to it because climate doesn't have to be a negative story right there's good things that are people are doing good things and there's good stories to tell so i want to talk about tone a little bit like do you see that i mean you know, like extrapolations, right? That's the big show, and I know you're studying that. You know, I think within that, there's it's such a big, heady matter uh, about like massive temperature change and things like that. And I think it is effective, but I also really would love to be seeing stories about like the intersectionality of climate change, food justice, you know, economic justice, racial justice. It's all tied into climate. Do you have when you know, okay, when when the studios are talking to you? Does that come up in conversation, or is it just climate? Well, that's the really the beauty about the subject of climate change is that there's so many ways you can go. You know, mm -hmm. you can yeah. you can talk about racial justice and bring climate. You know, climate is definitely part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk about economic injustice. You can talk. You know, there's so many ways to bring it in. Disease, of course. Um, so it's it's rich with stories to be told. Um, and so we're happy when anybody decides to do anything on yeah. any of those things. But I mean, whether you're on a cop show, a kid's show, a medical show, a political show, yeah. you know, a sitcom, there's something that you can do um, beyond recycling. You know, the recycling is right. great. And we look at, do they have a recycling bin? Are they using cloth bags mm -hmm. for their groceries and all of that good stuff? But, you know, to get, there's so many other stories that can be told. And I really think personally, the racial and social justice mm -hmm. piece is big. In fact, um, we did we worked with the show Madam Secretary on an 
yay, <laughs> on a, a couple of episodes, actually. And it, it's interesting because there's a nice trajectory there. When we first started working with Madam Secretary in the beginning and talking to them about climate change, and they did a couple of stories um, on climate change, and one in particular was um, where the Chinese were de doing deforestation in the Peruvian Amazon or something mm -hmm. like that. And Madam Secretary is trying to negotiate with the ambassador of China to get them to stop, and they had protests and all the rest of it. And she's um, she had uh, she had been through a terrible bombing in Iran recent in previous episodes, and she was suffering some PTSD from that. So she's having this conversation with the um, Chinese ambassador. And she's getting really riled up about it. Mm -hmm. She's like, look, if we don't, if we cut all those trees down, we're all going to, the world is going to overheat and we're going to be in war over water, mm -hmm. you know? And she's getting a little sarcastic and she's, and he's saying, ma'am, calm down. You know, what's your problem? <laughs> of course, she's a woman. So, you know, she's getting upset and he's sort of patronizing her that way. And um, anyway, she makes some really great points. And then she kind of storms out of the room and faints. So it was great message, but then it kind of was discounted because, mm. oh, she's suffering, she's not herself, she's overreacting. You know, it was like, it sort of gave that tone. We were happy that it happened and the information was out there, but it wasn't, you know, it kind of... So then another episode, Madam Secretary again, something about climate change, and... <laughs> And at this point, she's having her blood drawn for something else, like she's having some medical tests done. And there's an intern that comes into the room to brief her on some climate issues. And the doctor or the nurse is there drawing uh, Tia Leone's blood. And the intern is, you know, saying, oh, you know, all these reading off these climate-related statistics. And, but she's getting nauseated by seeing this, her blood getting drawn, the intern is. So she's like, you know, and the world is overheating. And, and, you know, she's trying to get through this presentation to the Secretary of State, and eventually she has to, like, run out of the room and vomit. You know, so again, yeah. great information, but it was still this tone. It's kind of discounting itself. Then finally, so this is over five years of, of or five seasons of Madam Secretary. So in the last season, you know, because we kept working with them on it, and um, they did an episode that sort of mirrored what happened at Vanuatu, at that island, um, where they had an, an island nation that was getting hit by a cyclone, and it was going to wipe out the entire nation, and they were going to have to literally relocate everybody. And so they're talking to the president of that nation about what to do and it's this huge storm and they bring up the scientist who explains about you know how the earth is heating up mm -hmm. and the storms are you know and and the scientist of course his office is like in the basement at the capitol building or you know he's down in the dungeon because they don't care and now they've brought him up to talk to the secretary of state it was a great episode and um and it did a lot it made a lot of impact and in fact didn't you look at the impact of that episode did you guys look at that? Okay, never mind. Well, I did want to um, ask, you know, I, I mentioned it briefly with extrapolations on Apple TV. It's very directly about uh, climate change. And then you had, uh, I guess, what has it must have been two years ago now with Don't Look Up? Um, also, you know, much more satirical, but very much about climate change. And, you know, 
like with Don't Look Up, there was a lot of like discourse in the media of like, is this good? Is this bad? Like whatever. But then, you know, the streamers don't have to release their numbers as we were exactly. talking about this week. But um, they were happy to release that like Don't Look Up. I had a, it said their weekly viewership record, 152.9 million hours viewed. Do you have any insight into something like extrapolations and what it's I doing? don't have insight into their viewership data, unfortunately. Right, correct. Um, we wish we did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Don't Look Up, so Netflix did uh, commission an impact study, not from us, from another organization, it. but it is unfortunately internal to Netflix. Exactly. So yeah. we can't get our hands on that data. Um, but there there was also an, another study that was conducted. I can't remember the name of the organization offhand, but um, there was another organization that did a, a kind of a brief study of Don't Look Up and um, it backfired with conservative and moderate audiences and really had very little effect mm -hmm. on more liberal audiences who are essentially already the converted. I mean, it took a rather mocking tone toward uh, exactly, yeah. the president who was, you know, ultimately eaten by an alien dinosaur creature. Sure. <laughs> uh, spoiler. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, the the right did not, you know, identify necessarily mm -hmm. with uh, the message of, of that film. Um, but to your point about kind of these glo gloom and doom narratives that we see all the time, like that's th that's the vast majority of climate content that yep. that we see. It's these mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic visions, um, you know, water world. We asked, uh, we did we did a survey of people who were in those three audience segments, the alarmed. Uh, cautious and concerned, and we asked them to name any any uh, climate stories that they could think of in fictional entertainment, either good or bad. Mm -hmm. And by far the most common. We did this research in 2021. Uh, by far the most common one. Can you guess what it was? Sorry. Uh, the day after tomorrow. Wow. That was in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the one that, that made the most impact on people. And that was, you know, not exactly scientifically sound. Correct. <laughs> um, so the thing with extrapolations, like it was designed to be not, not this doom and gloom narrative. It's, it's not mm -hmm. optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's, mm -hmm. it's realistic. Right. Um, it's, it's supposed to be like if we continue on the trajectory that we're currently on in terms of uh, global temperature rise, these are the things that are going to happen. So some of these things do seem pretty pretty apocalyptic, mm -hmm. but the idea is, um, you know, not not showing this as like something that's inevitable. Exactly. Um, there are things we can do now <laughs> to stop this from happening, um, but there's also life. <laughs> there's you know there will continue to be relationships and all, yep. all of these other things that are happening alongside climate change. Um, but you know what, what audiences are really looking for in the research we've done is stories that give them hope <laughs> and that really mm -hmm. demonstrate the, the things they can, they can do in their real lives. And that includes you know, individual behavior, like eating less meat, for example. Um, but it also includes the things that Kate was talking about, you know, civic engagement, like how can I take action? And there's tons and tons of research on many different topics that shows that people learn <laughs> from, from what they, the behaviors they see modeled uh, in entertainment. So, you know, when, uh, when a character is shown engaging in these behaviors, people are more likely to follow along um, 
you know, it generates these social norms. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it gives people this, uh, what's called efficacy, where they have the confidence that they can do these behaviors in, in their own lives. And the confidence that if they engage in these behaviors, it's going to have an impact. And that is essential in getting people to move from, like, attitude to action. That's great. Yeah, there's just, like, when you start telling climate stories, it's just, you can almost, in certain ways, think of it as, like, a situation. Like, this is the situation we're in, and now we have an opportunity for stories about community or innovation. You know, there's all these, it doesn't have to take this one track every single time because people then feel like they're being preached to and then there's this like idea of like perfection of like i am the perfect person for the climate like climate is my job and i'm holding a plastic like it happens like we're not you know what i mean like yeah um okay we are actually i want to open up i wanted some, well i just wanted to jump one other thing at, you know again there's such a wide range that you can go in terms of storytelling but water is another huge huge issue that um, you know, some parts of our country are have no water and others have too much. And if they can build a... This is my own little idea, but if yeah. they can build a pipeline for oil, couldn't they build a pipeline for water? <laughs> anyway, that's just an aside. Maybe that's a whole show, you know, yeah. I don't know. But, um, but no, water is just really issue, a really important issue and the, the preciousness of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so even just showing characters not turning on the water to take their pill and then staring wistfully out the window while the water is just running, 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 you sure. know, like, can we, you know, those kinds of scenes can change, you know, having them turn the water off. You know, I just finished binging all of Better Call Saul. Uh, and, you know, water is a, they're always, he's always showing like the water dripping out of, at least it's just dripping. But, um, but, you know, there are little things like that, that the, the TV can do again, that, is a kind of changing or helping us see better modeling that we can then incorporate into our own lives. So I just, water is important. And, you know, the word drought, it's not applicable to the U.S. anymore. It's, it's this is the new normal, you know. Mm. It's the desertification, not the decertification, the desertification <laughs> of the West it's not going to go, you know, these reservoirs aren't going to fill back up yeah. to the degree that we think they should be. So this, that's just another thing that, you know, any show can show the preciousness of water. Sorry, I just no, had to no, get no, on my good. soapbox there. You like to add and Zoanne wanted to say something. Yeah, just going back to your, um, your networks thing. You know, I don't have that problem necessarily on, on Grey's Anatomy and the Shondaland shows, but I was thinking from what you guys have talked about, I had a pitch that I went out with a year or two ago um, that had a huge climate change story in it and was about like a city doctor going to a rural area and had a lot of talk about like racial stratification and, and all of the things that we've talked about up here. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to, and I was like, this is, this is a no brainer. Everybody's <laughs> going to buy this. Nobody bought it. Wow. <laughs> and we went to like, try again now. Four different networks. Did you get um, any direct feedback that you've, felt like no okay. actually they they thought about it for a long time like usually in the past i've done pitches and got either sold in the room or shot like by the next day and the ones that i didn't sell i didn't hear from for a while and this was one of the ones that i didn't hear from for a while but it was a long while mm. and it was like there were some people that were fighting for it and some people were, who were like so i i think it went 
to a lot of different stages within the networks, but I think I pitched it like four different places and it, and it didn't end up going, which I was actually surprised because wow. I felt like it would be able to meet that, you know, the, the flyover states as we like to call them. Um, <laughs> it would be bad. And yeah. we had this really great, like kind of arsenic poisoning, uh, in the water kind of thing. And it was based kind of on um, the city that my mom, city, town that my mom grew up in was, was San Augustine. And literally, you know, the um, racial stratification was the blacks people on one side, the tracks, and then the white people on the other side. And it was like this whole, like just all these stories that I wanted to yep. tell and nobody was willing to tell them on television. Yes. Um, I do want to open for a couple more questions if we've got them. Yes. Uh, who would you say is the biggest antagonist to change? Uh, what actions are they taking to inhibit that? And like, what emotion is causing that? Is it just greed or existential fear? Oh, greed. I mean, that's my opinion. <laughs> greed. Again, it's the oil. It's the oil industry. It's the banking industry. It's what we put our value on. You know, what are we valuing? Um, you know, carbon credits, sorry, they're kind of BS. Um, I mean, it's a nice gesture, but they're not really doing anything. Mm. And the airlines and the big corporations are using that to sort of, you know, greenwash themselves or to um, pretend they're doing something. So I think really it, I mean, this is again, just me. And I'm not a climate expert. I'm just an expert on watching TV, you know, which is <laughs> like... There you go. Like the best job in the world. Um, but, you know, just from all the climate scientists and people that I've worked with on this, it's, um, it's yeah, it all boils down to money and what we value. And if we start putting our value towards something else, you know, toward um, improving the environment instead of continuing on this track of growth, we live on one planet. You can't, you know, you... It, um, capitalism is about growth, constant growth, growth, growth. You can't grow past this planet yet. I know people are trying, but um, so it's changing what we value. Do we always have to be growing and consuming more and all of that? And I think that's an attitude shift that the whole world has to take. That's just me. <laughs> that's a good Yes, sir. Two questions. I'm curious about the collaboration you have with shows. Do they approach you or do you approach them? I'll go first. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's both. So we have operators standing by to take calls from writers at all times, <laughs> emails or mostly, but, you know, and so if a show has already decided we're, we're going to write about X topic, um, then they can reach out to us and say, hey, we're going to write about this topic. We really want to talk to, and Zoanne's team does this all the time. They find like the most obscure disease or innovation, and they want to talk to this one specific person who invented it in, you know, New Zealand or something. And <laughs> But they'll call and say, you know, we want to talk to somebody in this field, and we'll hook them up with that person and we'll facilitate the meeting. We can bring them into the writer's room or, you know, it's an email exchange. Sometimes the show will come with just script pages and say, um, is this right? Is this what the doctor would say? Or is this, you know, and we can have it checked by a couple of experts to make sure that's the case. We are not the experts. We're the liaisons, you know, so we have a database of over 2,000 experts that are willing to consult pro bono 
We don't take a credit, we don't take a fee. This is all in the interest of public health and public information. So that when they come to us on demand, whatever topic it is, we'll help them. Then on the, on the flip side, we do lots of these kinds of things, panel events. We're partnered with the Writers Guild, so we do a lot of events in partnership with the Writers Guild, with the Television Academy. Um, we give an award every year, sort of as a carrot, you know, to honor shows that have addressed certain issues accurately with an impact on their audiences, and it's our own little red carpet Hollywood thing, um, which is lots of fun. Uh, we have a newsletter, we do tip sheets, we do a ton of social media. So we're kind of beating the drum on certain issues that need to be considered or maybe were forgotten. HIV was a big thing back in the 90s and the 2000s. Everybody had an HIV positive character and they did storylines around it and then it kind of faded away. And we still have a huge HIV problem in this country and, and the world and especially in certain populations. So we came back and said, hey, don't forget about HIV. Mm. You know, so we'll do things like that to raise awareness about certain issues. So it's both. And you, you were doing those um, lunchtime, what were those? Lunch and learns. Lunch and yes. learns. We yes. actually I do those we... on our own now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got the idea from you. So no, we, we still got, use your still lunch and to learns too. invite us Well, back. mostly we set them up and then call you. We would like to do a lunch and learn on this. Let's call HHS. But um, yes, we call them all the time. And then your tour that you're doing. Oh, yes. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. So we do, um, sometimes we take writers on field trips, which we call on location, and we'll pile them into a bus and take them to NASA JPL to learn about climate change, which we've done a few times. And uh, Next week, actually, we're going to pile uh, riders into a bus. And you're coming, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and drive them. Uh, we're calling it a toxic tour because we're going to drive down La Cienega Boulevard in L.A. where there's all these oil derricks pumping and people live there. And we're going to talk to the communities that live amongst these oil, oil fields and then further down south in L.A. to the um, huge... Uh, chemical oil factory, whatever it is, down there off the 405, if any of you know L.A. Um, and again, talk to the communities that live in the area, um, learn about the issue. Then we're going to meet a person who does ocean cleanup, pulling plastic out of the ocean. Then we're going to go have lunch at an organic garden with all, you know, no meat, uh, mm -hmm. vegan meal, and then we're going to go to some refill shops where you, because they're popping up all over, and I'm sure you probably have them in Austin where you can, you know, take your bottle and get it refilled with shampoo instead of buying a new plastic yeah. bottle every week or every, whenever. Um, so that's another thing that we do where we take writers and we try to expose them directly, you know, with these issues and with people who are dealing with these issues um, in their lives now. And again, that goes back to economic justice, racial justice, because you can imagine the communities that are forced to live in these areas. Um, so yeah, that's happening next week. So we do things like that again, to kind of just immerse them in the issue. We never tell them what to write. We just say, look at all this great storytelling that's there. But what I will say too, is that they don't just kind of flood us with research. They bring people with stories, which is what she's highlighting with the, the tour, is that we're talking to people, I guess. 
Um, <laughs> as opposed to aliens, yes. <laughs> as, as opposed to like just a ton of research and then figure it out, like what the story is. And obviously we're not going to just grab the story from the person. Sometimes we'll do an amalgam of those stories or sometimes we'll take that story and just like dramatize it or change it a little bit just so because we've got that vibe from them. So. And I know you had a second question about research, so I'll turn oh, yeah, it over to about Eric. surveys. So it depends on the show and how big the audience is, uh, and you know whether it's kind of a recent storyline or if it's far in the past. But most typically, we recruit viewers of the show through a market research firm. Um, we tend not to tell people to go watch the show because that's not a very natural audience. We're really most interested in how the actual audience for a show is reacting to it in real time. So if we have sufficient advance warning and it's a popular enough show, then we'll survey them before the storyline airs and then go back to them afterwards and resurvey them and measure um, you know, how their knowledge attitudes and behavior have changed following the show. One, one more very quick question. Now we're up against time, but very quick, yeah. I, I, just to, I just want to say thank you so much for this discussion. I think it's a really important one. And what's come across to me listening to is just this the responsibility that writers have. Like you, to your point about seatbelts, you know, we don't see characters smoking anymore. You know, so it would be wonderful if we didn't see characters eating burgers necessarily. Mm -hmm. But what the question I want to ask all three of you, I don't know if you can answer this, is why do you think Climate isn't sexy as a subject, and why do you think writers are not running this and actually thinking, could we do something really good for some of my work and, and raise some sort of consciousness around Did this? Did they do some research on that? Uh, not on writers specifically. I mean, I personally think they they have a misperception of kind of what the level of public opinion on this. Um, I, I mean, you can show well, them the I, research that shows that. Like 75% of people are concerned about climate change, but it, it doesn't register because, you know, they hear from the advertisers who have um, a well-funded campaign <laughs> yep. to make the public believe that this is not an issue that people care about. So therefore, the public believes this is not an issue that people care about. And the executives are part of the public. Um, they likely care about it. Um, there's also the perception that climate stories are didactic and heavy-handed, and it's true that they can be. Um, if done well, <laughs> they certainly don't have to be. Um, like, it all needs to be character-driven. I mean, that's where most stories start, right? With with the character and, the, like, what, uh, what situations is this character facing? Um, and these stories can be woven in in a very seamless way that is character-driven but still kind of acknowledges... Uh, the role of climate change and the intersections with things like mental health and uh, racial and economic justice and um, other health impacts. So there's there's like kind of uh, an unlimited way, mm -hmm. number of ways of integrating climate change into stories in a way that doesn't feel, you know, pound you over the head like this is a climate story. Yep. Then uh, there's one other thing that I read, I thought it was in your research, but maybe somebody else's qualitative research that writers sometimes have said that they feel a little reluctant because they're not doing, they don't feel they're doing enough in their own lives. So they feel like, how can I do put this message into my show when I'm not doing it myself? I think it's a cop out, you know, but I think I understand that, that logic. And I don't know if you've 
heard that from anybody. Or... I have not heard that. But, um, but what I would say, like when we were talking about the gun control thing earlier, mm-hmm. like the difference between doing like a gun control story and a climate control story is it's immediate. Its effect is very like in your soul. You can see it. It happens. You, you, it's, you can feel it right at the moment. A climate story, I feel like, is more of a, if we do the intersectionality, if we do all of that, you have to like plan that, and it has to be sure. a piece of the fabric of whatever story you're telling. And it's not as immediate. And if it's like, oh, we're going to use recycling things instead of uh, solo cups. I mean, you know, the drama <laughs> is not there. <laughs> So we can integrate these these things, but I think for a for a real climate story to really take impact, like I was saying with the one episode that we really wanted to really focus on climate change, we couldn't find the disease. It, it would have to have been something that we kind of started at the beginning of that season and followed that character and saw how the environment was changing and this caused that. So on this hot, hottest day, you can see the impact on that particular character. Like, I feel like it has to be something that's super integrated and maybe not to the point of extrapolations, but integrated within the thing. And it has to be something, like, for instance, we were going to do, we were really excited about doing, like, a food desert story and Bailey, Mm -hmm. um, one of the characters on Grey's Anatomy, having, like, you know, an urban farm that she was going to, we talked about it for years and years, and then... What it ended up being is she took a little hiatus and we heard that she had an urban farm Mm. and then she was back at the hospital. So it was like a tiny, tiny little thing that we had really wanted to build up. But it was it's like every time we tried to like dramatize it, it, we're we're just like, Mm. you know, so I think it's just a matter of trying to like really integrate it into the storyline and finding that character that it's going to really impact, like you said, character driven. But to find that impact and then make that impact dramatic, whereas in a gun story or something like that, it's like... And we actually, we studied a gun story on Grace, and it had a huge immediate impact. Very cool. Which I actually (laughs) talked about in our gun safety panel Can I go back uh, to you for a second? Um, I I, I hear that you're British. Are you based here in the U.S. or in the U.K.? To here? Oh, to, to the U.S., but you're in the U.K. currently. So there's an amazing organization in the U.K., Albert, which is part of BAFTA, um, that has been working with the entertainment industry in the U.K., and um, they've done similar research in the U.K. And uh, they... Albert? A-L-B-E-M-T. Yes, and it's part of BAFTA. Um, and they actually got uh, the U.K. Um, studios... Uh, or I forget what they're called there exactly, but I uh, got them to sign on to a, a climate pledge um, related to production and also to content. Um, so we've been working with uh, an, actually a, a UK-based uh, foundation who's hoping to do a similar thing in the US. Um, there are many barriers <laughs> to, to making that work in, in the US, um, but it's, it's definitely something that, that is in the works um, and has been fairly successful in, in the UK context. That's great. Unfortunately, we are against time. I could talk about this for another hour. This has been fascinating, and it's been an honor. I really appreciate it. I do want to leave everybody um, with one thing. Uh, I had the opportunity to see legendary and wonderful author Bill McKibben speak 
recently. If you're not familiar with his work, please dive in. He's an amazing, amazing activist who's been doing this work for decades now. And somebody asked him the question of like, what do we need most right now from his perspective in this fight? And his answer was, environmental activists are great at appealing to people who like bar graphs and pie charts. <laughs> what we need are artists and storytellers to enlighten and engage the wider population. So I would love for everybody here to take that with them after this. Thank you all. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.